Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. We have a real treat for you on the Coffeehouse today. We'll be looking into one of the Baroque kings, George Friedrich Handel, and a delightful piece for strings, the Concerto Grosso in A Major from his collection titled 12 Grand Concertos. Handel was born in Halle, Germany in 1685. Interestingly, this is the same year that another German Baroque composer was born, and that was J.S. Bach. Handel's father was a barber surgeon for the courts of both Saxony and Brandenburg. This austere position made him want a high-ranking career for his son, which in his eyes would be through the study of law. Well, as all you dedicated coffeehouse listeners will know, if a composer's father forces him to study law, he definitely won't stick with it, and his future music career will be more successful than anyone could have ever imagined at the time. And so it was for young Handel. He did begin his law studies, however, he also had a secret spinet in the attic of his family's home. And you'll remember from our discussion of piano makers that the spinet is a very quiet keyboard instrument, so Handel was able to sneak away to practice without his father knowing. In 1702, Handel officially began his law studies at the University of Halle. However, his father died the next year, and finally being free to choose his own career, he promptly began a fervent musical study. Luckily, he was good. He began to travel around Germany in search of the perfect job. He started out as a violinist in Hamburg, where he also began writing some early operas. He also spent some time in Italy, where opera had temporarily been banned by the Pope. But that was okay with Handel, as he learned the sacred genres of cantatas and oratorios, which he would later become world famous for. Finally, he did land a court position. He served first as Kapellmeister to George the Elector of Hanover. But this position didn't last long, as he soon became Kapellmeister to King George I of Britain. Yes, technically, his position didn't change, because he was serving under the same George, but now he was a more powerful George. And in 1712, <laughs> Handel made a permanent move from Germany to England and actually became an English citizen. Handel was a hit in England. In addition to working for the court, he also started a successful opera company. He mainly wrote his operas in Italian, however, they were still popular to this English-speaking nation. His opera heyday was in the 1720s with such works as Atone and Xerxes. Interestingly, even though Handel knew his native German and had also learned both Italian and French for opera purposes, he was notoriously bad at English in spite of spending a majority of his adult life there. In addition to grand stage pieces, Handel also wrote some lovely standalone works. Perhaps his most well-known was commissioned in 1727 for the coronation of King George II. It was an anthem titled Zadok the Priest, and it has been played at all British coronation ceremonies since. And remember J.S. Bach and Handel being born around the same time and place? Well, apparently, news of Handel's success had reached J.S. back in Germany. J.S. is quoted as saying that Handel is the only man I would ever want to be if I were not Bach. And apparently, J.S. desperately wanted to meet Handel in person. 
Unfortunately, due to scheduling issues and work duties, Handel and Bach never ended up in the same place at the same time. Handel's popularity faded, though, in the 1730s. It doesn't help that he suffered a stroke in 1737. The English audience, although they liked to think they were cultured and worldly, discovered that they really liked to see performances of things in their native language. And the stroke caused Handel to be paralyzed on the right side of his body, and his doctor feared he would not fully recover the use of his limbs or his mind. However, he miraculously did recover, but it took some time, and in the process, he had been financially forced out of any opera production still in progress. But he fell back on his earlier training from Italy and began writing English oratorios. These were essentially operas, however, the texts were more religious in nature, and there was less production costs associated with them. Of course, the most famous example of Handel's oratorio writing is Messiah. Having hit his stride again, Handel continued to churn out oratorios and even tried his hand once more at opera. Apparently, having felt that he had risen above his hard times, Handel actually staged a few of his performances for charity, performing in hospitals and children's homes. But no good deed goes unpunished. Near the end of his life, Handel developed cataracts and his eyesight was severely diminished. He underwent an unsuccessful surgery in hopes of curing the cataracts, but it seems to have only made things worse for him. However, he tried to remain as active as he could until the end. Just days before he passed away in 1759, he had conducted a performance of the Messiah. And when he did die at age 74, very old for the time, his funeral at Westminster Abbey was attended by over 3,000 people. His English home that he lived in since 1723 was memorialized and is now the Handel Museum in London. So now let's talk about an instrumental piece by Handel, the Concerto Grosso in A Major. This piece was written in 1739 as a large collection of 12 concerti grossi, all categorized under the Opus 6 number. The whole collection was written in just over one month. However, this rate of musical output was not really unusual for Handel. Various other collections and works had previously been churned out in record times. This whole collection was enthusiastically sought out by the public and widely published. Before the work was even completed, the publishing house had put out advertisements about the upcoming Grand Concertos, and about a hundred subscriptions, essentially pre-orders, were placed. Following the initial publishing run, several reprintings were ordered, even long after Handel's death. Some concerti in the collection call for wind instruments included in the score. However, the number 11 in A major that we are looking at today is strictly for strings. In the past, we've touched briefly on what makes a concerto grosso a concerto grosso, but we'll give a little refresher on the term here. Literally translated from Italian, the term means big concerto. Essentially, it's a concerto that features a group of solo instruments instead of just one single soloist. This solo group is often referred to in scores as the soli or concertino group of instruments. The accompaniment group is often scored for a slightly larger group of instruments and is called the tutti, or ripieno group. In this group, there is usually a basso continuo, which is basically just the underlying bass line and harmony, usually played by a harpsichord or basses and cellos. The concerto we're looking at today is a bit unusual in form in that it has five movements, and this kind of would seem like it's more similar to a dance suite type form. However, only the fourth movement really seems like it could be a dance of any sort. 
The rest of the movements are more song-like, meaning the aesthetic is more about what it sounds like rather than how well it moves forward in time for dancing purposes. Movement one is like a fanfare. Movement two, the allegro, is flashy with very long phrases. movement is hardly a movement at all, but rather more like a transition between two very different characteristic movements. Following that is the fourth a dance-like movement that is written in 3-4 time. This is characteristic of a waltz-type dance, and is by far the most steady tempo and danceable of all the movements. And the longest movement is the finale, marked Allegro, but it's really in somewhat of a rondo form. Everyone agrees that Handel was one of the kings of the Baroque era, and thus his music really is an embodiment of what people like to listen to. The term Baroque itself refers to an irregular pearl. That doesn't have a lot of meaning musically, but what people were getting at when they described the art of this era is the flamboyancy and almost frivolousness of the beauty. To get a visual image of what this means, think of something like a gilded picture frame that is about twice as big as the picture it holds, and is covered with filigree, intricate patterns and scrolls, and is overall a bit chaotic. How that seems to translate into music is that the measures get subdivided, parts are often playing counter rhythms to each other, and overall the sound is more constant. Of course, there is silence when needed but in the very dense parts of a work, there are many layers to wade through. Handel provides various samples of this dense writing throughout his Concerto Grosso. In the first movement, he actually has measures that progressively become more subdivided. He begins with the solo violin playing eighth notes, moving to sixteenth notes, and then to thirty-second notes as you can hear the sound space being progressively filled in. In movement two, there are sections that begin in canon, meaning like a round, where one group starts and the other follows with the same melody. However, it's not a perfect canon, as the groups diverge from each other. Though the sound is still unified enough that it doesn't sound bad, if you really listen closely, it does sound like there are essentially two different ideas being developed simultaneously.
In contrast to the busyness of some of the other movements, the short third movement is very spacious. It's basically just a fancy chord progression. Though the work was written in A major, we begin in D major in the third movement. Coming out of the second movement that ends in A, the starting chord only sounds slightly different. D major is the predominant four of A. A major chord consists of notes A, C sharp, E, and then D major consists of D, F sharp, A. The A is sounded in the top violin part in both the second and third movement chords, and moving from C sharp to D and E to F sharp is just stepwise motion for the other instruments, so therefore the chords in our ears match and go together. At the other end of the third movement, after we have gone on an upward modulation journey, we find ourselves on a C-sharp major chord, which is the major third of A major. This is a good chord to modulate back to A in the fourth movement with, as its notes are C-sharp, E-sharp, G-sharp. So once again, just a little stepwise motion from G-sharp to A, and making the E-sharp E-natural brings us back to our home key. But of course, all we hear on the downbeat of movement 4 is A, but we can assume that it's meant to be the major tonic. Now this technique is usually used within a musical piece as part of a running modulation, and at that point it's known as a pivot chord, since you can stay standing on one note and pivot to the next neighboring notes to change the rest of the chord. However, used between movements like this keeps the whole work sounding cohesive. We have already discussed how the force movement is like a waltz. It's very nicely written and includes some virtuosic passages for the solo group. So let's move on to the fifth and final movement. Previously, we described it as being almost like a rondo. The first theme we hear is catchy and short and to the point. We wouldn't mind hearing it many times throughout the movement, and we do come back to it, but not quite as often as a normal rondo that reappears after every other short theme. One thing in this movement that is somewhat unique in the piece is the usage of the entire ensemble. Though there have been interesting lines written for the Tutti group throughout, Handel really uses them to their full potential in this movement. There are numerous times when a small melodic idea is run down through the entire ensemble, not just limited to the solo group. This actually sounds very modern, like when a romantic composer would use all the different timbres and ranges of instruments to pass things through an entire ensemble. However, in this same movement, the solo group seems to get the most time to shine without the tutti group having interesting lines under them. For example, in this excerpt, all the moving notes and even moving accompaniment are provided by the solo group. The tutti group, on the other hand, just has eighth note pickups to quarters every other beat to outline the harmony. Listen for the harpsichord for the best representation of this. Handel ends this movement in a very fun way. 
he has a familiar melody that ends with a downward turn. Then he repeats that, sort of, but to make it more dramatic for the finale, he allows the line to keep spiraling upward a little longer before bringing it back down. What good fun! Handel's music always has a jolly quality to it, and though he was German and took a lot of the continental sound to England, he did have quite a say in creating the English sound. So we hope you have enjoyed this episode on one of the most important Baroque composers to ever have lived. If you did enjoy this, please consider sharing it with a friend and sharing it on social media as well. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Concerto Grosso in A Major was performed by a Far Cry Ensemble. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.